0: Australia? Because I know you said a sister in Canberra. Did I get that right?
1: Yeah, I'm. She was in Canberra at one point. I don't know where she lives now because I don't. I'm not sending her mail or anything because yeah. it costs you damn much. So, but yeah, uh, a sister of mine did a semester in. Australia met a boy. He then did a semester here in the states. He went from Australia to East Carolina University, so he was like in the Appalachian Mountains. He was not (laughs) prepared for that, both climatologically and culturally. And uh, they ended up getting married. They had the wedding ceremony in the U.S. and the reception
0: in Australia. I mean, that's that would be kind of hard to get to after the after the ceremony. Everyone's like, "All right, thank you so much for coming. You've got your plane tickets. We'll see you in forty eight hours." I think destination weddings are just the most selfish thing ever anyway. So Yeah, they are. And um, I mean, I don't really know what's going to happen with, with, with my – what's going on in my life because I do have a partner and whatnot. But I imagine that if we ever did some sort of commitment ceremony, um, we would probably just have one here, have one there in the U.S. Do you know what I'm saying? So like everyone, at this point you'd have to do it over. At this point you'd have to do over over Zoom. Oh well, we wouldn't be doing this anytime soon. Trust me, I I do not have my life together to to no no. Oh gosh, I'm getting nauseous just thinking about it. (laughs) Um, Anyways, that's the perfect segue to go into. Hey, it's me. You. It's been a while. Um, I'm Maxwell, host of Relic: The Lost Treasure Podcast, Um, and I'm here with Moxie Labouche of Your Brain on Facts. Hi, thank you for having me on. Yes. Um, which, up until five minutes ago, I actually thought that this was going to be your show and I was very confused. So, um, that's the kind of brain space I'm in these days. But, Moxie, thank you so much for coming on to my show. I was telling you this before um, we started recording, but your voice is amazing. And I understand there's a bit of a legacy there with um, when it comes to to recording, because you said your mother was a DJ?
1: Yeah, all the credit for my, my voice goes to uh, my mother. She wants very specifically for me to refer to her as an on-air radio personality, because the term DJ has changed a lot oh. since she was using it, because now it means, like, Skrillex. <laughs> and she was definitely not that kind of DJ. Uh.
0: <laughs> um. Well, I just have to say your podcast is so professional. I remember um, I was listening to it the last couple of days uh, and I just kept thinking, oh, she wants me to go on this show I- it's so professional, and I'm such like I'm like an audio goblin who just like talks out of his butt. This is gonna be, I'm gonna ruin this show. And then so I was so relieved when I when I realized again ten minutes ago that we were actually doing my show. That's very embarrassing to be yeah, recording, but I'm doing it because you know what I'm. If anything, transparent. Well, see, it could have been a disaster, but luckily we're such huge
1: nerds, you and I, that it really doesn't matter. We could be doing no show at all. We're just like, yes, tell me about this library that burned down. And because I didn't know Ivan the Terrible had a remarkable library. So I'm I actually didn't really read the script you sent over because I want to like be surprised.
0: (laughs) I want I want to hear you tell me about it. Well, that's I'm glad that you brought that up just now because it that's a beautiful segue into what we're actually doing today. So I know it's been a while since I've done Relic. Um, I've taken a break for tons of reasons, mostly because I just, with what's all all that's going on in the world right now, I just felt like it might not be appropriate um, to do um, to do uh, episodes in the heat of the moment because I think it would distract. You, you know, we've got so much brain space we keep for. Um, uh, internet things like podcasts and social media and I wanted if I could just sort of take a you know g- kind of step back and let give people the space to talk about things that were more in the m- more um, needed and relevant right now I kind of wanted to do that and also just for my own <laughs> my own being out of spoons (laughs) because of so many reasons. But, um, I think that something like this, which is so timely because we're talking about the loss of knowledge and, you know, the, the deliberate destruction of knowledge in many cases, um, it's it does feel appropriate to discuss this you know right now not to bum everyone out um so we are talking about lost libraries now i've done lost books um before on this podcast but there's just so much content out there when it comes to missing literature and turns out missing repositories of literature. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit today about some of the more famous, mysterious lost libraries, and it certainly isn't going to be the last time that this topic is touched upon on Relic. But, Moxie, why don't we discuss arguably the most famous lost library? Because there's a lot of misconception about this, um, as I understand it. And it's definitely one of those topics that you think you know the story. But it turns out that it's a lot more complicated. And I believe that would be the Library of Alexandria. Yes.
1: Yeah, it's, if you're a book nerd, it probably still stings just knowing that in, you know, the BC, a library that large was burned, it still hurts your heart just thinking about it. That and the library that sank into the sand on Avatar: The Last Airbender, oh, kind of fifty-fifty shot on that one. <laughs> oh
0: yeah, it's been a minute since I saw that show. It's it's kind of having a revival moment, which is lovely to see. Well, it's on the, yeah, it's on Netflix. So if it's not on, yeah, if it's not on Netflix
1: in in Oz, get a VPN so you can so you can binge watch it like uh, like the rest of us. And I was actually just I was on a podcast earlier. I was on a podcast earlier today that pits you know, fictional characters against one another and who would win. And it was, I was doing, um, I was championing Katara against, uh, Samus from
0: the Metroid <gasps> video games. That's, ah, oh, that's tough. I mean, I think, uh, Katara in a, in a narrative landslide, of course, because she actually has character development, um, Samus, really, her cultural weight was just being kind of the first woman in a video game. And they never really elaborated on that, you know, that in giving her a personality or a character, or I think they might have in one game, and it was a complete misfire, but I- it was a yeah, complete farce. But no, this was just this was just mono a mano, fighting oh.
1: these two characters. Who would win. And we we agreed that Katara could do well if she got the drop on Samus. But if Samus gets the drop on Katara, Katara's toast.
0: Well, Samus but is, that's not... I know we're not talking about that, but I just <laughs> want to say with Samus' whole thing is, like, you start the game where she, like, has no equipment. So it, I, I guess you have to, like, that playing field is very... Uh, that's sort of a spectrum. It's like, are we talking Samus when you start the game or Samus when you end the game?
1: I think you kind of just... Like, you assume, like, whichever... However you picture the character when you think of them. So sort of, you know, the finished character, like Katara after she learns waterbending, not beforehand.
0: Ah, okay. All right. Sorry for that detraction. Uh, (laughs) Library of Alexandria.
1: All right. So uh, the the Library of Alexandria, the city of Alexandria was founded by, here's a shock, Alexander the Great, loved naming cities after himself. And uh, his successor in Egypt, Ptolemy I founded what was called the Museum of Alexandria, the Greek Moussion is probably not how that is pronounced, but it is M-O-U-S-E-I-O-N. It. So it's like Mouseion, the seat of the Muses, which contained the the Royal Library of Alexandria. This was founded in 283 BCE. It was set up by a great scholar uh, named Demetrius of Phalaean, who had very much impressed Ptolemy with his scholarship and his extensive knowledge and interest in learning. The museum was a shrine to the Muses, modeled after the Lyceum of Aristotle in Athens. It was a place of study that included lecture areas, gardens, a zoo, and again, shrines to the Muses, as well as the library itself, where the actual volumes were kept. It's been estimated that at one time, the Library of Alexandria held over half a million documents from Assyria, Greece, Persia, India, and many other nations. Over a hundred scholars lived full-time at the Museum of Alexandria, the whole complex, to wow. research, write, lecture, translate, and copy documents, which was a very important part of what they did. will get to that in a second. The library was actually so large that they spun it off into a second branch or a daughter library at the Temple of Serapis. The books in the library were divided into different subjects, not like the Dewey Decimal System like we have it, but they sorted it into rhetoric, law, epic, tragedy, comedy, lyric poetry, history, medicine, mathematics, natural science, and then just sort of other. Um the books were acquired for the library either by being purchased by people all throughout uh, Egypt and stretching out into the Roman Empire, <coughs> Excuse me, uh, but also through copying and confiscation, such as acquiring books from the ships, it was called. So whenever a ship arrived at the harbor of Alexandria, government officials went aboard looking for books. If they found books or, or any other documents of Common knowledge. They would take them back to the library, where those scholars who lived there full time would copy them, and return the copy to the
0: ship. I mean, at least they did so, that. I mean, it's the, you could be worse, I suppose.
1: I don't know, man. Giving me back the copy, taking my book, and giving me back the copy would really get my back up, particularly with the, the the effort that went into writing anything back then because you had to like hire a guy because your average person couldn't do it on their own. So you had to have a, a scholar or a clerk or something that they were going to if you were going to write anything. So they they come and take your stuff and then they make the copy. And instead of giving you your stuff back, they give you back the copy. But I guess it was just so well known and accepted that people just went with it.
0: I mean, such it's like authoritarianist knowledge seeking is essentially what that is. Um, and because there's a sense that you're doing it for the greater good, because it's like this is going to be in a huge collection of aggregated knowledge. So you're kind of doing like a public service in a way. But at the same time, I would be so annoyed just waiting there being like on my ship, being like, So are you done with the copy yet? No.
1: Oh my God. And that, and that stuff took forever back then, too. So I'm
0: just going to, like, I mean, there's worse places, I guess, you could be stranded and then, you know, ancient Egypt, but you know.
1: Yeah, but like, just, you know, you kind of picture the, well, you tend to, I I picture anyway, like medieval monks at their little desks, copying manuscripts, but boy, I hope you don't need to turn that ship around in any kind of hurry, because you're going to have to leave without your stuff. But uh, the books in the library were mostly in either Greek or the uh, early form of Egyptian that was spoken at the time. In Greek, you would find the works of Aristotle, Sophocles, Euripides, and other Eases. And the Egyptian books tended to be books about the traditions and histories of ancient Egypt, some of which we really wish we had right about now, because they were histories of 30 dynasties.
0: Wow. And you gotta
1: remember, ancient Egypt stretches back a really, 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 really long time really long time because i mean cleopatra for example like the last pharaoh of the ptolemy line lived closer to the invention of the ipod than she did the building of the last pyramid (laughs) they were going for a while i just one of those facts i love to
0: drop uh, into conversations and stuff so i just i'm just like thinking because like what is it um just as a reference point because we're both from america america is like Three hundred. and I don't know the exact number, but it's almost over three hundred years old, or just about.
1: Well, it's it's it depends on like how you count. When you can either look from when Europeans arrived, and then you have to decide if you're counting the Spanish or the English. Oh, I'm sorry. I should say the yeah the colonized United States. The actual founding of the the actual founding of the U.S. was 1776. I'm sure you remember that from you know elementary school history class. Um, you know the the English came over pretty soon after the the Spanish. So, um, what Jamestown, Virginia, which was like one of the first settlements is I think just over 400 years old. And I only remember that because on the 400th anniversary, they changed all the license plates at the DMV. And like, I don't want the Jamestown one. They're, like, that's all we got now. That's the only kind of license plate we're giving out. I mean, that's year. a chunky, oh, that's a right. chunky
0: bit of time. But that even that pales into comparison with like the Egyptian dy- dynastic period, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. it's, it's
1: faint, tiny little sliver compared to it, yeah. And I know a lot of people in uh, in other countries like to, particularly European countries, like to, to rag on the U.S. for being quite a young country for not having a lot of history but it's older than a lot of countries in Europe it's the oldest country in the Western Hemisphere it's older than Italy, it's older than Germany, uh, and it's older than all but two countries uh, in Africa hmm so, okay. you know, sor- sorry, lazy, sorry, lazy British stand up comedians, you're going to need
0: some more, some more material. F- oh, I'm sure that. Do you think anyone's starved for material right now when it comes to the US? Anyways, we're going to get to a whole other kettle of fish if we go down that path. Let's keep talking about some books.
1: <laughs> no, I was I was recording with a very nice fellow out of Southampton uh, a couple of days ago, and we just agreed. Um, I won't judge him by Boris Johnson. If if he doesn't judge us by you know who, because no. we don't actually say his name out loud, we use the we use the anagram <laughs> Lord Dampnut. But speaking of people who would rather who would burn books rather than read them, um, I'm trying to remember that line from Indiana Jones and mm. the Last Crusade, the Library of Alexandria, this amazing repository, this great wealth of knowledge, was destroyed, not once but twice twice. The first person that we're going to blame for this was none other than Julius Caesar. In 48 BCE, Caesar was pursuing Pompey into Egypt when he was cut off by an Egyptian fleet at Alexandria. Badly outnumbered and in enemy territory, he ordered the ships in the harbor to be set on fire. The fire spread to the docks and spread to the city where it caught the library. Uh, Caesar wrote that the starting of the fire in the harbor, he wrote of starting the fire in the harbor, but neglected to mention that he also burned down the library. Uh, such an omission proved very little since he was not in the habit of including unflattering facts when writing his own history. He really left those part out, parts out on the whole. Um, but he had some fairly vocal detractors who were more than happy to let people know that, oh, yeah, that library that burned down, that was Caesar. The second destruction of the library, because I, I guess he didn't get it all the way to the ground. I mean, I've had two house fires and it's still standing. What? Well, it, it, it twice had to be torn down to the studs and sort of rebuilt up from there. It's a hundred and, uh, 170-year-old house, so it's, it's seen some stuff. The first fire we think was caused by a 15-year-old Himalayan cat who decided that she wanted to be where the oil lamp was. So the oil lamp... Went onto the floor. The second fire I know was caused by a bolt of lightning because after it struck the house, it dissipated out through the ground to where I was standing with my hand on a wire fence and sat my ass into the mud. So if I ever lose track of where we are in a conversation or try to tell you something you told me five minutes ago,
0: oh, wow. that's why. Some of the files are Jeez. 404. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> that's insane oh god i'm glad you're still with us obviously yeah uh, yeah i didn't even get any superpowers kind of a bummer geez
1: <laughs> okay but the the second story of the library's destruction is a little bit better known thanks primarily to author uh edward gibbons and his book the decline and fall of the roman empire though it's a little more complex than the story he included and it's to do with when um put the accent on the right syllable here, Theophilus was a patriarch of Alexandria from 385 to 412 CE. So we're on the other side of the zero line now. And during his reign, the Temple of Serapis was converted into a Christian church. So it's likely that any documents stored in, so this was the branch of the Library of Alexandria. And so any, you know, heathen heretical, non-Christian documents that might have been inside when it was converted, were probably just hauled out back and burned. The Temple of Serapis was estimated to hold about 10% the volume of the Library of Alexandria, which is still a huge, huge, huge amount of volumes. And after Theophilus's death, his nephew Cyril became patriarch. Shortly after that transition, riots broke out when Hyrax, a Christian monk, was killed by order of Orestes, the city prefect. Now, Orestes was said to be under the influence of Hyphatia, a female philosopher and daughter of the last member of the library of Alexandria, because, of course, it had to be a woman's fault. Sorry, not, not bitter with the way history is written, or anything. Um, although it should be noted that some consider Hyphatia herself to have been the last head librarian of the library of Alexandria. And if you ever want to hear like a, a clearer recounting of more modern um, histories, I cannot highly enough recommend the podcast <laughs> "You're Wrong About," which gives you the f- which gives you the full story of the big headlines of the '80s and '90s that you think you know, and it turns out, oh, it wasn't all to blame on that woman who was on the front of the tabloids for six months. Like, even stories I thought I understood pretty well. I'm like, wow, this is actually complex and much worse than I realized. But anyway, so you're wrong about a real favorite of mine. So the city of Alexandria was known for some pretty volatile and violent politics. It was kind of a melting pot city because you had Christians, Jews, and various uh, you know pagan and just other religions living together in this city. One ancient writer claimed that There were no people in the world who loved to fight more than the people of Alexandria. So immediately after the death of Hyrax, a group of Jews who had helped to instigate his killing, allegedly, lured more Christians into the street at night, allegedly, by claiming that the church was on fire. I'm also a member of the tribe, so I get defensive (laughs) when I hear stuff being blamed on on Jews, especially like really old-timey stuff.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It kind
1: of happens a lot. Funny that. So when, well, yeah, when the Christian people rushed out to, you know, go and s- try to put the fire out on their church, the largely Jewish mob slew many of them, smote them, if you will, allegedly. And after that, it was pretty much chaos. As Christians retaliated against both the Jews and people of, you know, what you might call pagan religions, including, you know, the inherent religions of the re- of the region, and one person who got caught up in that yeah. was Hyphacia. And the story varies depending on who is telling it, but many agree that she was dragged out into the street by Christians and killed. Some regard Hyphacia's death as really the last nail in the coffin of the Library of Alexandria. So the main library got destroyed, the satellite library got destroyed, and then the head librarian got murdered. So we're, we're really running out of a paper trail is not exactly the right word, but it's what I'm going to go with for now. You know, there's, there's very little of it left if we keep burning and murdering it. Uh, other people blame uh, Theophilus for destroying the last of the scrolls when they were converting the temple of Serapis into a Christian church. Absolutely yeah. do blame him also. And then, uh, you know, through time, the events have gotten twisted and conflated and switched around. And some people aren't as sure of how it happened at all. And then, because there's not enough blame to go around, some people blame the Muslim uh, caliph Omar. In 680 CE, uh, Muslims took over the city of Alexandria. Upon learning that a great library containing all the knowledge of the world was located there, Caliph Omar supposedly, or his general asked him for instructions, what he should do about this, this great library, and the caliph was quoted as saying that whatever's in the library will either contradict the Quran, in which case it is heresy, or it will agree with it. In which case I' don't,
0: superfluous i 'm sorry, I just find that hard to believe, knowing the ancient Islamic world and how much like science came out came out of that, and how you know the scientists were devout believers in you know islam i just i just i don 't know my gut instinct feels like that 's like propaganda
1: it, it, it very well could be we 've already blamed women and Jews, so why
0: not throw the Muslims under the bus? i mean I can't, if but I think on the other hand, I can see it. I don't know. I don't know. That, that doesn't – but it doesn't sit right with me. It just doesn't seem like – I just have a hard time believing that just knowing, like, the ancient Islamic world – granted, I mean, because I feel like Islamic extremism as we know it is kind of a fairly modern phenomena. And that kind of school of thinking is actually relatively modern. Not to say that there haven't been religious elves throughout history. And I could be totally wrong about this. I mean, I don't actually know a lot about um, the history of Islam. But I just feel like if they're like all the knowledge of the world is here, their first thought would be like, okay, well, we got to protect it or we got to basically take ownership of it or something.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would have thought similar to how how you're thinking considering what I know about medicine – in the Middle East in ancient times, which was just a millennia ahead of of Western Europe, and the Dark Ages would have gone really, really differently if there had been some Muslim doctors in England, France, Spain, and, and Germany. You know, things things would not have gone quite as badly as they did. I think because they would just they understood how things worked. Yeah. And it was not as much about, well, tie some wolfsbane to it uh, and turn counterclockwise under the new moon. And if that doesn't work, uh, tie a half-dead bat around your waist, and by the time it is all the way dead, you'll be cured. Which is – I'm not really making up. I've got part of it wrong, but that's basically a cure for something back in the day, which is tie to tie a bat to yourself, and by the time it dies, you'll be cured. So, so that's that's what Western medicine had to offer at the time, whereas Eastern medicine actually had, you know, medicine. So I'm definitely not qualified to speak to the veracity of this. I am reporting what histories I found in my research, which is, you know, it's what I do. <laughs> but so Omar declared that either whatever was in, still remained of a library was either heresy or redundant. So he's, he ordered his general to destroy them by using them as kindling to heat the bathhouses. So it's like extra dick move. Though there were still so many documents, it's said to have taken six months to use them all up. Six months! That's a lot of books and scrolls and and various other things, you know. But nope, they seem to have worked their way right through them. But, you know, there is the asterisk, like we said, because the history is written by the victors and and yada, yada. And this account of the acts of a Muslim caliph do come to us from a Christian bishop. So big old margarita glass grain of salt on that one. Uh, So, you know, who, who really is chiefly responsible for the destruction of the Library of Alexandria? and it depends on who you ask. Plutarch blamed Caesar, Edward Gibbons blamed Christians, Uh, the bishop blamed the Muslims. Everybody who wrote about it had a bias. And those biases tend to be written down as facts. And because they're written down as facts, they get repeated as facts. Um, I came up with a, a phrase um, in the foreword of my, my book, The Your Brain on Facts book, called cemented apocrypha, where a story is just presented as true, and then it becomes true, like George Washington and, and the cher- chopping down the cherry tree. I cannot tell a lie. That story that you know you and I know so well from elementary school didn't appear until the fifth edition of one particular biography written about him. So it wasn't It wasn't even in the first edition of the biography. The, guy, the author didn't make it up until five editions in. But, you know, every single elementary school student is taught that as fact. So we never really be 100% certain what happened to the library. Did it happen all at once? Did it happen over time? What happened at the sister library, the satellite library? We never really know. All we know is there was a ton of incredibly valuable information, and now it's gone. Bummer.
0: Yeah, I, I, so I feel like in with so many voices blaming each other, I'm, I think it's probably a combination of everyone. And that's usually what happens when people are blaming each other like that. It turns out that everyone sort of had a hand in it. And I know that there's a lot of conjecture out there about the library. There's some who say that it just kind of fell into disrepair and like the lack of upkeep because there were Pharaohs, or rulers who came in, who were more jazzed about it and would like give it funding, and others who didn't care as much, and so it, it just kind of suffered the fate of most humanities funding, and sort of just it depended on who it was in power and who was allocating money to it, and so that inconsistency led to vulnerability. Um, there's some who also say that the the original burning of it wasn't intentional, it just kind of got caught on fire like everything else during the moment. But Caesar didn't deliberately want to destroy that, uh, destroy the library. Um, yeah, so there's all sorts of crazy stories about the Library of Alexandria. Um, and there's some who still think that copies of those books still exist somewhere out there.
1: I mean, well, you know, they did keep the originals, but they had made copies and sent them back with the people who had brought them. So, you know, those copies had to go somewhere and it's very possible they could still exist. Of course, we are talking about plant material from, you know, two and a half millennia ago. So even if you know you need to keep this safe for posterity, it's really hard, really hard to do. Um, I do agree with what what you're saying about how the library would have gone through um, ebbs and flows depending on how keen... The ruler at the time was on libraries, like for example, we have a ruler right now who I don't know would even recognize a library if he saw one. <laughs> so probably not a lot of funding going that direction.
0: And you know, we'll just kind of touch upon some other cases throughout history before I go into to my um, presentation. But there, the burning of knowledge on a mass scale is not. You know, contain just the Library of Alexandria, the first emperor of China, uh, Qin Shi Huang. Um, I, I've mentioned him on Relic a few times, but essentially, he is credited for sort of unifying China and doing all these amazing things. But he was an absolute tyrant, and he burned a lot of alchemists, essentially because he was trying to find the. Uh, the, and scholars as well. He burned scholars uh, alive. And he was doing this because he was very, and he was an anti-intellectual and he also was trying to find this, you know, the source of immortality or a, an elixir of immortal life. And when he failed to get that from alchemists, he just decided to get rid of all of them essentially. But he also destroyed almost everything that had been accumulated in the hundred schools of thought, which was a, um, scholarly movement that had existed in China for centuries up until that point. And so, like, I think they say like a third of human history was lost in those book burnings That from all that knowledge that had been accumulated in China. Um, just, you know, from things we don't... N- places, moments in time, identities, concepts that we're never going to know about just because they were destroyed. It's really ancient history. And... It's, it's funny because the, the episode that of Relic that I did before we're doing this one was a two-part episode on Atlantis and, like, where did the idea of Atlantis come about. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, if some – If the Library of Alexandria still existed and there wasn't anything in the the archives there about, like, the ancient city of Atlantis or something that clearly was Atlantis, you know, that would definitely put the whole concept of whether or not it existed to bed. Because either there would be something in those archives that would have said, yes, there is a place like this, um, or there wasn't, and in which case it probably didn't exist. And so now we just, we don't know. There's so many concepts which just don't, we don't know whether they were true or not.
1: Well, that's a really good way to, uh, to get out of having to prove, you know, if you're a big pro-Atlantis guy, and people are like, well, where's your proof? I'm like, well, I would love to show you. I would love to show you, but it got burned up in the Library of Alexandria.
0: I mean, because the only thing we have is really just this, the primary source of, of Plato um, coming up with the story, which he says he inherited from other people. And there's some rumors that other people kind of maybe knew about it as well by and large, the, you know, we only have him to go on. So who knows? Um, yeah, were there any other kind of libraries you wanted to touch upon before I go into my tale? Oh, no, I absolutely want to hear about
1: uh, about Ivan's library. Because if nothing else, I have had the uh, the epic rap battle of Ivan the Terrible versus uh, Alexander the Great in my head since yesterday.
0: And uh, thank you Well, so you're going to, as we go into this, we're going to see that a lot of things kind of come full circle. Uh, Because just when I had said, well, maybe some materials from the Library of Alexandria still exist. Well, turns out there's a chance that they might. So shortly before the collapse of the Soviet Union, a set of catacombs and tunnels was accidentally discovered during the expansion of the Moscow subway. So there's an image for you. So I think it's the, uh, the start of the '80s or the very end of the '70s, they're uh, trying to expand the subway. We're going into a very kind of the last gasp of the you know, the Soviet union and they break they breach the wall and they find all these catacombs which um definitely not something you want to do in 2020 because it usually is the sign that some kind of ancient curse is going to befall the (laughs) fall the world and we really don't have time for that right now yeah just brick it brick it back up and walk away (gasps) so it's believed that these tunnels were built by prince Dmitry donskoy who ruled moscow for 30 years beginning beginning in 1359 and um he had taken over the Russian uh, seat of power at that time. So, uh, he had created these tunnels as a secret escape route. Should the Kremlin, which is so old, by the way, um, we talk about like the white house, you know, but the Kremlin is surpasses that in in how old it is. Um, so yeah, for those who don't know the Kremlin, the the current Russian seat of power, but it was the Russian seat of power Mm -hmm. for, for centuries. So, the patriarchs of the Russian church had also created a set of tunnels for similar escape route purposes. And over time they connected their passageways to these passageways underneath the Kremlin. Uh, However, it is widely rumored that these underground passageways also concealed a hidden treasure known as the lost library of Ivan the Terrible. So who was Ivan the fourth, AKA Ivan the Terrible He was the first Russian czar who basically brought up the country from being kind of this collection of medieval Game of Thrones type tribes into a somewhat unified empire. So expectedly, he was insane. He ruled from 1533 to 1584. His first wife was Anastasia Romanova, and if that name sounds familiar to you, then you've either heard the relic episode on the Fabergé eggs, or more likely because of the really weird coincidence that she shares the same name as the last princess of the Romanov dynasty. So the first princess has this, and the last princess had the same name. Um, and in fact, the Romanov dynasty, the you know the Russian royal family for centuries. They descended from that woman, Anastasia. Um, So one can imagine Ivan didn't get his last name because he liked baking cookies. He was crazy and bloodthirsty and basically did a lot of things um, that that shot himself and his fledgling empire in the foot. Uh, He was also a well-learned man. He utilized the tunnels built by his predecessors to store weapons because he was afraid of revolution, which it's fair. It's Russia. Revolutions are kind of their thing. Um, so what was in this library? Well, it's hard to know for sure because it's not actually documented, the The library itself, what's in there, none of that's documented until Peter the Great's rule in 1682. So this is almost 100 years after Ivan. It's believed that Ivan the Terrible actually inherited some of the library from his predecessor, Ivan III. The story goes that after the death of Ivan III's first wife, Maria of... Ver, not sure how you say that, in 1467, Pope Paul II suggested that Ivan III wed Sophia Paleolog, the niece of the last Byzantine emperor, in an attempt to bind Russia to the Holy See in Rome. So kind of just this very political marriage of convenience across the spectrum of Europe. So uh, I think at this point Russia was sort of getting a name for itself in the greater Russian uh, European context and also Asian context. Um, so in 1472 Ivan and Sophia were married, and Sophia, as part of a wedding gift, brings in a collection of very old books that were brought with her um, to her new home in Moscow. Now it's difficult to ascertain what form this library takes. But one of the the speculations is that all those old books that she brought with her were, in fact, the remnants of the Library of Alexandria that had made it out of all of the conflagrations over the years. So from what I've researched, this library, it's not like the Beauty and the Beast library where there's multiple levels of bookshelves, you know, underground, because that would be really cool, but that's not possible. Um, what I've gathered, mm, I choose to picture it that It would be it cool, way. like, you go underground and there's just kind of, like, a grotto that's full of bookshelves that are, like, old and, like, built. I'm
1: picturing a cross between a library and an asuburn. Yeah. Ooh.
0: So it's, like, shelves made of bones, full of books. Oh, that would be... Very goth, very calm. Yeah. Um, so what I've gathered is that it's more like this sort of large collection of books that are that are just basically sealed inside trunks. So this is good news if it means we're going to ever recover the books because depending on how airtight these chests are, it could mean that some of those books are preserved because you had argued that, of course, plant material breaks down over the years, which is fact. But, you know, there are cases where that... M- the degradation of papyrus and paper can be stalled a little bit. Um, I don't know what those conditions are because I'm not a scientist, but you know, if you have, I'm going to just assume that a book in an airtight chest is probably going to last longer than a book that's on just the shelf exposed to the elements, but I might be wrong. So in 1518, the Greek scholar Michael, uh, sorry, Mikhail Tripolis, also known as Maxim or Maximus the Greek, was summoned to Russia on the orders of Moscow Grand Prince Vasily III, the son of Ivan III. He was called to translate the Greek text there, uh, which included this library. And when Tripolis got there, he was just like, oh, you got a few books for me? Sure, I, I know how to read Greek. I'm Greek or whatever. And then he enters the actual chamber or wherever these books are held. And he, he's like, oh, I vastly underestimated how many books are here. He's, he writes that he saw countless multitudes of Greek books. And as I understand it, a lot of Greek books would have been um, in the Library of Alexandria. Now, this doesn't really give us a number, and countless is a bit of a suge- subjective word here, but it is said that Maxim assured the prince that even in Greece, he had not he'd never seen so many Greek books. So it was probably a lot. Probably yeah. a lot, yeah. Now, what were the contents of these old books? Well, depending who you ask, it contains works that would apparently shake the foundations of history if it was ever discovered. Um, so... You know, as I mentioned, there's theory that a lot of these books are Greek, Latin, and Egyptian tomes from um, not just the Library of uh, Alexandria, but the Library of Constantinople as well, and second-century Chinese texts and manuscripts from Ivan IV's own era. So this would have been after the first emperor, I'm pretty sure, but um, it's still things we would probably not have on hand today. Um, among the works, and this is a little bit speculative, it's, um, it does specify what, might, like, what kind of books might actually be there. It might be 142 volumes of uh, Titus Livius's History of Rome, uh, of which historians are currently only familiar with 35 of them. It might include a full version of Cicero's De Republica, which only fragments currently exist, um, and some unknown poetry of Virgil. Now, this, all of this is apocryphal. It comes from a very unreliable source who speculated on what was in the library. So um, it's unlikely that actually exists, but that's just one of the things people think might be there. In terms of who's gone looking for this library, the uh, who's who's include Peter the Great, Napoleon Bonaparte, and the Vatican. Uh, so there's also a lot of legends attached to this library, such as Ivan laying a curse of blindness on the collection of works before his death, as well as Ivan forcing his scholars to translate these ancient ancient texts specifically so he could acquire the knowledge of black magic. Now, as someone who's really into lost treasure, I'm quite frankly shocked that this hasn't been the plot of an Indiana Jones story because I know there's like a new one coming out and I almost want it to be about this because that just is a perfect setup
1: no please tell me please tell me you're just come on man after the kingdom of the crystal skull somebody thinks it's a good idea to
0: try again (laughs) I mean you're gonna get me on a very long tangent but my short answer is yes Uh, yes because I'm there's also Harrison Ford like is 80. I know and but I think that the character of Indiana Jones and all of that should probably I mean there's a lot to, there's a lot more content to be gleaned from that story. Um, this is an argument for another time though. Uh, but whatever. So anyways, what happened to Ivan the Terrible's library, right? So Sam say the library vanished after the Tsar's death. I don't know why I say Tsar, it's Tsar. It's a quirk of mine. Um, it's, Say it however you like sure. <laughs> Some say it was burnt and it was burnt either intentionally or unintentionally, perhaps at the Tsar's orders. So over the years, many archaeologists and treasure hunters alike have tried to locate the library, but um, as you might imagine, the windows for when people could freely do such a thing in Russia have all been very short-lived opportunities, because Russia has never really had a moment to breathe, historically speaking. Um, But by far, one of the more interesting accounts of an attempt of some sort to explore these creepy tunnels and where the library might be comes from a gentleman named Apollos Ivanov. And it begins with a bang, specifically the explosion of the statue of Christ, the Redeemer Cathedral. Did I say statue? So, nope. Yeah, I did.
1: But I I wasn't going to, you know.
0: Because I was just thinking of Christ's Redeemer in Brazil.
1: Redeemer, the vagina yeah.
0: statue, yeah. I mean, I wasn't going to yeah, say Yeah, I was it, tired but. when I wrote this. It begins with the explosion of the church, not the statue of Christ the Redeemer Cathedral in Moscow in 1931. <laughs> um, so many people like... So turns out many people like churches. Joseph Stalin, not one of them. So he had the place detonated. So Ivanov at this time was a 22-year-old construction worker at this site, and he was present for the tearing down of the church. And while he was there kind of doing cleanup or admin or whatever, he discovers a floor plan from the 19th century that he – Um, looks at, and it's this map, so it's just like the floor plan of the church, kind of the schematics, and he sees dotted lines leading from one of the rooms instead of solid lines, and, you know, for us who grew up watching cartoons, dotted lines uh, usually represent something that should be there, but isn't currently. So, he was curious, he, um, Wanted to know what was going on here. Probably not the best attitude to have during nineteen during nineteen thirty three Russia, but whatever. So he asks his director. His director thinks that it's just an error on part of the map maker. Ivan Ivanov does not believe this is true. So the church is destroyed. The foundation in the ground remains. You know, it's a basement essentially. So he goes down there uh, with a metal bar when no one's looking, and he starts tapping against the walls that are left in this you know the underground and after a few tries he hears the sound of a solid sorry the sound of a hollow wall so he's like what is going on here the next day he brings along his friend boris um and they break through the wall and behind that wall is a metal door and though it's quick quick interruption yes sorry to interrupt you if i
1: disappear suddenly It will probably be because of the thunderstorm that looks like it is right outside my window. So just, you know, finish up the show without me if if I just like suddenly
0: vanish. (laughs) Um, Sure thing. Um, I would probably just stop and wait till you get back on. So that'll be the protocol. Well, um, as I have mentioned,
1: my house has been struck by lightning. Not just that one time. (laughs) but like a couple of times. And I usually end up with fried electronics when it happens. Like I've lost oh. uh, cable modems and cable modems and routers half a dozen times since I've lived here. So if, <laughs> if I disappear, just assume I'm dead.
0: I thought you were going to say if I disappear, it's because Vladimir Putin didn't want me to know about the, um, the mysterious Russian door. No, in- he'd, he'd go after you. I think you're closer. I'm a closer in Australia. Uh, no i don't think i'm closer i'm in australia i think the, the russia okay,
1: let's let's look so wh- what city what g- gender or region if you don't want to say we're we doing this
0: um yeah I, i'm doing it okay i'm in sydney and i sydney. know you had mentioned you're in richmond i'm in richmond virginia yeah so right, so we're, we're seeing relative what? to moscow relative to russia as a country because moscow
1: I, mm, moscow i'm assuming putin's you're right. in moscow okay well it's a 19-hour flight it doesn't know how many miles but we'll
0: we'll go with flight times We're doing this, guys. I don't care about the lost library. I care about being right. Or what do you have?
1: I'm not sure if these airlines flight schedules can get me. (laughs) There's
0: no airline in the world that's operating the way it should be right now. We're going through a disaster, historical disaster. Okay, we got we've got 9,000 miles from Moscow to
1: Sydney, and then let's see. So maybe I don't. Oh no! I'm actually a lot closer. It's about five thousand miles from Moscow, which from Virginia. I guess I just really did not. Let's be honest. I had no idea where Moscow was. Not even
0: a little bit. Well, Vladimir Russia. Vlad, if you listen to this, this one goes out to you, baby. Um, Now that doesn't mean he couldn't get guys to do it. He's probably got guys on the. You know. In the eastern part of the country, I, I mean, at the end of this story, I don't think he's really going to care, but whatever. So, um, so they find a creepy rusted Russian door. Uh, they manage to pull it open again. Twenty twenty, probably bad idea. Uh, and the article that I read this on, and I'll include links to it. It says, with a gust of cold air, it opened, revealing a stone series of stone steps leading down into the dark. Ooh. So, uh expectedly the two realized that they were not in Kansas anymore. They're like this is, this is weird. What are we going to do about this? So after a few nights they got some lanterns and they went down to the earth because it's 1930 and Russians just had you know more courage than most people at that time of history. I was going to say something kind of lewd, but, but yeah. Um, so the passageway diverges when they get down there, with one path leading towards the Moscow River and the other path leading to the Kremlin. They chose the Kremlin route. Now, was this a smart idea? Probably not, because the existence of these tunnels had actually been suppressed. Joseph Stalin was afraid a coup attempt might occur by way of dissidents sneaking into the tunnels and coming up from the Kremlin to overthrow the government. So basically, imagine if a group of people found a way to enter the White House from the basement. You get the idea. So the passageway became a bottleneck. It was like narrowing. It was getting tighter. So Boris and Apollos had to squeeze through with one guy in front of the other. Now, after a distance, they, they look to either the right or the left, and they see this kind of alcove or chamber. And inside are two skeletons on the floor. And opposite this chamber or alcove is another room with two more skeletons. And despite this, and probably because they were Russian, they shrugged and moved forward until they came to a third alcove. And this time the skeleton there had been crucified to the wall with a metal bar holding its limbs and heads to a cross. Um, and I'm reading this being like, oh, that's probably a good time to turn around, guys. But Apollos recounts that he thought this had just been put there deliberately to scare off would-be explorers. So they kind of shrugged and kept going. Russians. It would work. So fi- it would work on me. It would probably work on me too. So finally, around 300 meters or 984 feet for those who'd use the imperial system um, from the actual Kremlin, so very close to the actual, like, un- you know, underneath The Kremlin, essentially, they're stopped by another steel door that had been rusted over, but this one, unfortunately, they couldn't open. So the two young men decided they would come back after getting some more tools. However, they never got the chance, because when they emerged from the basement of the destroyed church, they were met by two of the Kremlin's guards and were promptly thrown into prison. Ivanov's boss, intervened and was able to plead for the guards to let them go. And when uh, Ivanov and his friend were released, they basically threatened them with death if they ever uttered a word about what they found down there. Um, unfortunately, Ivanov's boss, who really took a bullet from him lit- for him literally, was not as lucky because when Stalin would happen, he had Ivanov's manager executed and a public swimming pool built into the foundations of the church so the tunnel could never be accessed again. Ivanov did not tell the story until he was 78 years old because he feared Stalin would come for him. Um, actually, that might be wrong. I think he wrote a book about it when he was 78 years old. I think he started telling the story after um, Stalin had died. So Ivanov has since claimed that he strongly believes there are other tunnels yet to be found and some think one of these tunnels might contain that lost library of Ivan the Terrible. What's weird is Apollos Ivanov is not the first person who's gone down into the tunnels below the Kremlin only to be threatened by whomever was ruling Russia at the time, which lends this whole story a bit of intrigue in 1724, Moscow petty official Konan Osipov Ozy- mentions a discovery made by an individual named V Mac- Makaryev. Makaryev in 1682. Now, I couldn't find any further information about this person named Makaryev, and there isn't a lot of information to work with concerning the identity of who that might have been, what their role was, but I'm going to to go out on a limb and guess it was someone who was a palace official or who had worked for the royal family at the time. So they had been asked to go into the tunnels of the Kremlin. The reasons of which aren't clear. I assume maybe it was to doing maybe to do some cataloging or surveying. And while this person was exploring, they came upon a secret passage. And in that secret passage was a room full of trunks, mysterious old trunks. It's like treasure chests. This individual reported this to Princess Sophia, uh, Princess so- Sophia Alexievna. And when the princess found out about this, she immediately ordered those rooms forbidden. Now, it doesn't say she ordered them sealed. It does not say she turned pale and fainted at hearing this. It does not say whether or not those rooms have since been rediscovered. But I thought it was a very little weird bit of apocrypha that I wanted to include in the story. So, in conclusion, the general consensus is that the library was destroyed by a Polish invasion shortly after Ivan IV's death, or... The scholar Maximus, the Greek, exaggerated and made up a story about something that just does not exist. However, a lot of well-educated people think there are more tunnels to be found underneath the streets of Moscow. Uh, And some people think that the library was moved to another city that would have been under the control of Ivan the Terrible slash Ivan the Fourth. So who knows? And that is the story of the lost library of Ivan the Terrible.
1: I think it was really great that she ordered it to be sealed and not, you know, immediately destroyed.
0: Well, see, what's so frustrating is I, you know, the only tools at my disposal are Google and the internet, really. So I, what I usually like to do, and I'm kind of just sort of, you know, pulling back the curtain here a little bit is I will actually go on Wikipedia, hear me out before I get burnt at the stake here. I will go on Wikipedia and just kind of get the overview. And then from Wikipedia, there's all, usually a lot of helpful links you can jump off to that contain more information than what's summarized on the Wikipedia article. So I saw that bit about that V. makaryev person on the Wikipedia entry of the Lost Library, and I Tried to Google it three different ways to Tuesday, and I did not find anything except in a book that I had to like pay to access. And it just looked like that was information that had been reiterated. Because just the way that it's put into that article isn't really scholarly. It's just like there's also the story about this petty officer who mentioned this person. And it's very, it, it's one of those things that. It's. It feels like it's written by someone who doesn't have critical thinking skills because a lot of the information buffers, like, but it's not known who this person is, but this is really vague. None of that's there. It just feels very – it almost feels like it's translated directly from Russia, like, incomplete. So I'm not really sure about that detail. I did think it was a little bit weird, though. Um, and I'm also not sure if it's just a story that kind of adds to the mystery of, like, what's ever in those books is clearly not something that should be accessed because of black magic or who knows. But um, I'm really surprised that I've never heard about that, that lost library before, because there is a lot of juicy elements for narrative fiction that can be pulled out of that story.
1: Well, there are so many lost libraries, because when I was just doing preliminary research, you know, when you search for anything, it'll bring up like lists, like the the 10 most whatever or 10 things you didn't know about what I'm like, wow, we have lost a lot of libraries over the years. Um, I have a friend who is quite the history buff who refers to history as a series of stabbings which is I so desperately want him to start a history podcast called A Series of Stabbings. A series of stab- <laughs> but it. I I would say I would say I would say history is a series of stabbings with a side of book burning, you know, or a side of, of library destruction because it seems to happen like an awful lot. And no shame on starting your research um, at Wikipedia that's just letting somebody else get a little bit of a jump on it for you. Cause all those sources are cited at the bottom. If you're like, okay, this seems like a good place to start. Let me go to the footnote.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for validating me. Um, I feel like you kind of concluded the podcast really well there just now. Um, you don't have to agree with anything that's written down ever, but to just destroy it. It feels that you're sort of robbing someone of the consent to make, a choice for themselves, and to to think and to make, um, you know, to take away what they want to take away from whatever literature they're they're reading. Um, that's not to say that some information is dangerous, you know, especially in in this time period, in these unprecedented times that we're going through, where the truth has become something that's up for debate. Where where we're kind of becoming more tribal in our thinking, and we're not really going off of things that. And it almost feels like we're just kind of like, as a society as a whole, just kind of suffering this this same mental illness almost. But we're going off of, we're acting on things and news and bits of information. That might not be true, but they objectively and don't involve any critical thinking skills, but they make us feel, it makes us feel good. It makes us feel validated. It reinforces a certain worldview. And we cling to that. That way of thinking is dangerous, because it doesn't allow you to even entertain the idea of looking at something that challenges that worldview. It leads to uh, yeah, I'm getting political. I don't care. Um, people pe- people not wearing masks, at least, you know, when they should be, or making choices to protect their fellow man because they think that everything is a conspiracy that's out to get them um, because they're so afraid. And, you know, it's so easy to be angry at that people and all that anger is valid. But I think that I'm, st- me anyway, I'm starting to arrive at this point of, a little of pity and just kind of wanting to see people kind of maybe soften up a little bit and come around to at least the, the point of just having a conversation and having a civil argument because I think everyone is just so afraid right now because we've just reached one of those linchpin periods of history where there's an iconoclasm between cultures and these happen every now and then throughout history where there's these big revolutionary moments where a lot of people just basically tear each other apart over things and uh, I think that a lot of the anger right now is very valid because it's basically as a result of failed institutions and things that have not been addressed for so long and very and things that you know have cost people lives that haven't been addressed for very long but um, I think to circle back when we feel like the, the right thing to do is to burn knowledge that we don't agree with you know you know as they say where you burn books, soon you shall burn people. So. Oh, is that rage
1: against the machine?
0: <laughs> joking. Um,
1: Unless it is, in which
0: case, aren't I clever? Um, anyways. Wow. So on that very cheery note, um, Moxie, where can people find you?
1: Well, I just want to say one more thing yeah, on yeah. what you <laughs> yeah, were saying please, please. first before going out, which was, which was just remember, you can have your own opinion. You may not have your own facts. Mm -mm. Facts are, there's like one. (laughs) There's one. You can think whatever you want, but the facts... Are what they are. But so if uh, people have enjoyed what they have heard from my side of the show today, after they have listened to every last episode of the Relic podcast, they can use that same app to look for Your Brain on Facts. I know for a fact that you can get the Your Brain on Facts book in Australia from Amazon because I got a picture of someone in Sydney holding up her copy. So no excuse,
0: sir. Yeah, please, please do. I mean, m- I don't want to, you know, take a dig at what I do here, but Moxie is such a pro and just just such a, just fascinating, just delicious topics on, um, on the, on the podcast there. So just definitely check it out. Moxie, thank you so much. This was so cool. Um, so yeah, uh, you can check me out at, at lost treasure pod on Twitter. Um, Patreon is currently free. Because I just think that's the right thing to do right now. So if you want to make a donation of your own volition, by all means, please do so. Um, I think there's a lot of other charities right now you could be donating to. But if you feel like you would love to support the show, by all means, do so. But the content on Patreon, um, all the episodes of Tales of the Reliquary, that's free right now if you want to check it out. And it's going to probably be free for the foreseeable future. And if that changes, I'll make sure people know ahead of time. But um, stay safe out there. Stay educated. Take care of each other. um, And choose love.